Good morning, everybody. Man, I tell you what, when you have to write your last sermon, there's a lot of pressure on that. I don't know if you've ever watched a TV show, gotten into the series, and they have the finale, the, the last episode. I've always been disappointed in every last episode. There's like a lot of pressures. I'm like, well, we'll just have to get through this and kind of worry about it. But I actually wanted to start um, by reading you a story. So uh, get comfortable, kids. Uncle Sam's going to read you a bedtime story. <laughs> and I've actually did this before, uh, four and a half years ago, a little over almost five years ago. And as I was trying to think through, like, well, how do I want to wrap this up and close uh, the, uh, today, uh, this came to mind as, no, this is where I kind of want to be. It's from, called The Spyglass by Richard Paul Evans. So let me read you this story, The Spyglass. Once there was a great kingdom. This kingdom was known throughout all lands for its splendor, its magnificent buildings, its great terraced gardens and bountiful farms. But through time, all that had changed. Now the once great buildings were falling down and in need of much repair. The farms were now small and did not grow enough food for the kingdom, and the poor villagers would oftentimes go to bed hungry. The people of this kingdom were not just poor by way of things, but they were poor of spirit, for there was not much joy in the village. There were no dances around the maypole or palace cotillions. Rather, rarely was music heard, but for the simple pluckings from a lute of a traveling minstrel now and again. Worst of all, the people had forgotten why their kingdom was once great. The king of this land did not look as you might expect a king to look, for he did not have a magnificent throne or flowing robes or a golden crown inlaid with precious gems. He was the king of a poor kingdom, so he looked quite ordinary and poor himself. His castle was always cold and in need of repair. He had but one manservant and one milkmaid, he did not entertain the kings of other lands, for he was greatly ashamed of his kingdom. Now to the east of this unhappy land was a beautiful kingdom with great farms and glorious cathedrals and castles, and there were lovely gardens adorned with fine sculptures and sparkling fountains. Night and day, the breeze from the city walls carried the most exquisite music, and the enticing scents of perfume, myrrh, cassia, and cypress, as well as the smell of delicacies, for there was an abundance of food in that land. It made the people even more unhappy to look on the wealth of their neighbors, for despite their poverty, the people prided themselves on having once been a great kingdom. The king did not often leave his castle, for he was weary of the complaints of his subjects. One day, as he sat down to a meager dinner of bread, a slab of cheese, good choice, and boiled mutton, there came a knock at the castle door. The king's servant opened the door to find an old man with a large oak walking stick. The man wore a cap and a girdle and a coarse woolen tunic. A large cloak of skins was draped over his shoulders, and he was carrying a leather canister, which hung from his shoulder by rawhide thongs. Hail, said the old man, I am but passing through your kingdom to the village to the east, and I'm looking for an inn to spend the night. And the servant frowned. This is not an inn. This is the king's castle. The traveler looked around in surprise. This is not much of a castle, he said. Aye, the servant agreed. Still, I am weary from my journey. I would like to rest here. You must inquire of my lord, the servant said. Well, lead me to him, said the old man. So the servant led the old man down a dark, cold hallway to the king's dining room, and the king looked up from his meal as the man entered. You're the king of this land, the old man asked. I am, the king replied. You don't look like a king. The king frowned. I'm the king of a poor kingdom. Our farms do not grow, our buildings are falling down, and my people weary me day and night with their complaints. We were once a great kingdom, but all that has changed. 
The old man nodded slowly. Well, why don't you change back, he asked. Change, the king replied angrily. We have tried only to fail. We lack all knowledge of what once made this kingdom great. You lack but one thing, the old man said. If you will give me supper and lodging for the night, I will on the morrow show you why you fail. The king looked at him thoughtfully, then said, motioning to the platters of bread, cheese, and meat, eat your fill. The servant brought in a wooden platter, and the old man ate with the king. When the old man had finished the meal, the servant led him to a room, and that night as the king lay in his bed, he wondered if the stranger had tricked him. The next morning, the old man came to the king in his throne room. You have lived up to your part of the bargain. Now I will live up to mine. Follow me. The king followed the old man to the castle balcony, and there the old man brought out a long round canister and pulled from it a brass tube with a sewn leather cover, a spyglass. He raised the spyglass to his eye and looked out over the land until a smile crossed his face. Then he handed the spyglass to the king. Look, thither. The king looked out through the glass, and he could see great farms and gardens, magnificent candle, castles and cathedrals. He lowered the spyglass and said impatiently, I have seen the wonders of the eastern kingdom. I hear far too much of them. You're mistaken, said the old man. It is your own kingdom, you see. The king again raised the spyglass, and this time he recognized the hills and glens of his own kingdom. But where there had been barren pasture, there were now fields of grain stretching as far as the eye could see. His own people were in the fields, their wagons overflowing with their harvest. You're a wizard, said the king. It's a trick of the glass. It's no trick, said the old man. But when the king put down the glass, his kingdom looked the same as before. Nothing has changed. No, said the old man. Change requires work. But one must first see before doing. The king again raised the glass. What greatness this kingdom holds. You have seen what might be, said the old man. Now go and make it so. After two harvests, I will return for my spyglass. The king on horseback went out into his kingdom. He rode until he came to the edge of a once beautiful garden, now overrun with weeds and thistles. No one walked in the garden. There was neither the happy cries of playing children nor the pleased sighs of lovers. A group of villagers were standing outside its fence. Their children played at their feet in the dirty roadway. Why do you not use the garden? The king asked them. It's not fit, sire, replied a woman. So it is not, agreed the king. But it could be. Look. The king held out the spyglass. And one by one, the villagers looked through the tube at the, at the garden. The weeds and thistles were gone, and the lawns were lush and inviting. But when they set down the glass, the garden had returned to its overgrown state. It's an amusing device, said one man, but of no use. No use indeed, the king said. Behold, Nave. And he went to the garden, and he began to pull the weeds up by his own hand. And when the villagers saw what he was doing, they too began to pull up weeds until they had uncovered a large marble statue of an angel. Its wings spread, its face looking towards heaven. The people stared in the statue in silent awe. At length, the king mounted his horse, but before he left, he said, You have seen what might be. Now go make it so. The king rode further down the road until they came to a farmer sitting on the ground threshing grain with a small flail. How goes it, man? The king asked. The weary farmer barely looked up. Can't grow enough to feed ourselves, sire, the farmer sadly replied. The king lifted the eye spyglass from his coat. Come hither, good man. Behold your farm. The farmer lifted the eyepiece to his eye and gasped. It is sorcery. You have seen what might be, said the king. Now make it so.
Farther down the road, the king came to a crumbling cathedral. The roof had rotted and fallen in, and it was no longer safe to enter its arched doors. There were tents that were pitched outside where a small congregation had gathered. The king rode his horse up to the tent, and the friar who stood before the people stopped speaking as he approached, and all turned to see the king. Why do you meet in tents? the king asked. Why, sire, our cathedral has fallen. Why have you not rebuilt it? The friar opened his arms to his congregation. We are a few in number and poor. Have you shown your congregation what could be? The king asked. The friar looked quizzically at the king. And what might that be? See for yourself, said the king, handing him the spyglass. The friar looked through it and saw a new cathedral, larger than the decaying building and more elaborate, adorned with beautiful sculptures of saints and cherubs. The friar stared in awe. By the grace of God, he said, I have seen a vision. You have seen what might be said the king. Now make it so. And day by day, the king went out until he had visited all the people of his kingdom and shown them what might be. Though there were some that would not look through the glass or who refused to believe what they saw, the greater part of the villagers looked with wonder and hope. That same year, there was a plentiful harvest, and the farmers filled their wagons and barns with grain. But not just the farmers prospered, The wagon builders were busy building wagons to carry all the grain. The millers were busy milling the grain into flour. And for the first time, for as long as the villagers could remember, there was more than enough to eat. Music and dancing again filled the streets. Old buildings were repaired and new buildings arose, including the beginning of the most majestic cathedral in all the land. As promised, two harvests later, the old man returned to the kingdom. He almost did not recognize the castle, for so greatly had it changed. The scarred wooden door he had once knocked on was new and intricately carved. Beautiful tapestries adorned the now-polished marble floors, and the castle's once cold chambers were warmed with heat and music, and the king was attended to by a bevy of servants and maids. The king, dressed in lavish robes of fur and silk, warmly welcomed the old man. "'My friend,' he said, "'I have awaited your return. Look what prosperity your spyglass has brought my people.' Let us make merry and prepare a great feast in your honor. The old man smiled. You have done well, he said, but I cannot tarry. I have only come for my spyglass, then I will be on my way. At this, the king frowned. In the two seasons since you blessed us with your arrival, we have accumulated much treasure. In exchange for the spyglass, I will trade all the gold in the royal coffers with men in wagons enough to carry it to wherever your destination. You have spoken wisely, said the old man. For the gift of the spyglass is worth more than all the gold and all the royal coffers all throughout the land. But keep your gold. You no longer need the spyglass. But there's still much to be done, pleaded the king. Yes, said the old man. But you no longer need the spyglass. You can see without it. How is it possible, asked the king. The spyglass only showed you what could be if you believed. For it was only faith that you and your people lacked. The king shook his head in disbelief. How can this be? Faith is foolishness. So says the fool, the old man said. Faith is the beginning of all journeys. It is by faith that a seed is planted. It is by faith that the foundation is dug. It is by faith that each book is penned and each song is written. Only with faith can you see that which is not, but can be. The eye of faith is greater than the natural eye, for the natural eye sees only a portion of truth, but the eye of faith sees without bounds or limits. I had not supposed, the king said. That is why you once failed, said the old man. Faith is why you now succeed. He placed his hand on the king's shoulder, and with a smile, you have seen what might be. Now go and make it so. 
And though the old man and his spyglass were never again seen in the land, the kingdom continued to prosper and became again the great kingdom of old. Yet despite their abundance of food, their beautiful buildings, their lush gardens and majestic cathedrals, it was ever after said of this kingdom that their greatest treasure was their faith. It is a gift to be able to see what can be. This is how such amazing advancements in technology and science and medicine have occurred. Men and women who were discontent or unsatisfied or simply bored with the status quo and dreamed of what could be. And driven by the power of what can be, they produced amazing inventions, inventions that eradicated diseases, inventions that changed travel and communication and interaction, and we reap the benefit of dreamers and visionaries who were able to see things that did not exist and believe that they could. Except floated cars that were in the Jetsons that I always thought by this point in my life we would have, and that doesn't seem to have been made a reality. The Bible refers to a few supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit that gives the church the ability to see what can be. Gifts like gifts of faith, or gifts of revelation, or gifts of prophecy. These are gifts that belong to the church for the church to be able to see a preferred future. And just so we're clear, when I say a preferred future, what I mean is that the Holy Spirit will empower us to see what it looks like when God has His way, or His kingdom. The Holy Spirit, so to speak, holds up a spyglass at a situation or a person or an opportunity and we can catch a vision of what can be. And most of us are desperate for such revelations. We need them if we're going to pursue the abundant life that Jesus promises us in John chapter 10, verse 10. You'll, you might remember, he, he gives a, his disciples, he says, listen, the thief, referring to Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life, and not just any kind of life. Life to the full. And so let me ask you just in a moment, just bring to your mind that thing in your life that you know that you're struggling with, like the thing that kind of keeps you up at night or that flares up your ulcer. You might think that one thing, like, can I have a list? Like, like I understand that. Like, just, but what are the things that cause you that stress and that anxiety, the thing that you're exhausted of continually dealing with? You don't have to say it to your neighbor, just bring it to your mind. For some of you, it might just be a habit or maybe a sin in your life that you have literally tried thousands of times to be done with. And sure enough, the moment that boredom or anger or stress or resentment hits your life, it is your go-to and you're back again. For others, maybe it's weight loss. I think about all the time you've spent attempting this diet or this new routine or this exercise program, all of the thoughts that consume the self-conscious little behaviors that go with it. For others of you, it might be your finances. Like, that's what, that's what keeps you up at night. You're so tired of opening up yet another credit card with 0% interest for the next six months and transferring all of your debt there, even though it has that 3% transfer fee. Or maybe it's the reality that your car needs fixed and you don't have the money to pay for it. Or you're playing every system you know how to play to figure out how to get food and clothes for your children. And it doesn't matter what you do, you can't catch a break and so you've started watching Breaking Bad episodes on Netflix, not for their entertainment, but as a possible business plan. <laughs> Maybe it's your marriage or some other relationship. Nothing turns your mood faster than yet another fight, another resentment, another failure of communication, another dashed hope, an expectation that things were going to be better, and you have never felt more alone. The thief comes to kill and destroy, 
And when he does, you live in the aftermath of just lies and deception and stolen vision. And the brilliance of our enemy is once he takes you there, you are stuck because at this moment, you're only thinking about survival. And no one in survival mode is a great visionary. And the reason why is because survival only allows you to see the immediate. Survival mode steals from you the ability to have a vision for a preferred future. And sometimes this happens just like, uh, sometimes people get upset with those who are in poverty because of their behaviors or their life choices. We have this judgment, well, why would they buy that? Or why didn't they do that? Or why can't they, you know, all those sorts of things that happen. And what they don't understand is it's because they're in survival mode. Like they're trying to figure out how to survive today how to feed their children today, how to not become homeless today, and you're all over here like, well, if they just enroll in classes at Ivy Tech and get a degree and get a job that pays living wage and they can finally get out of this mess, all of which is true. But you can't see that when you're in survival mode. And teachers know this. Teachers are out there trying to cast a, a vision for a great and bright future for their kids, or at the very least, required by the state of Indiana, a passing score on their ice tip. But if that child is in a home where they're just trying to survive home life, like just a parent who will be around and care, or food, or basic necessities, if it feels like they're just in survival, let me tell you what the last thing is that the kid cares about, the math portion of the I-step test. And this is where a revelation, like a gift from the Spirit to give us revelation, is essential to obtain abundant life, or life to the full in Jesus. And when I say that, I don't, I'm not trying to feed you some prosperity gospel necessarily. What I'm just saying is most of us are living in conditions that we need to get out of or that we want to get out of, and the place to start is a vision of what can be. We might not be there yet, but we can see it. And this is where the metaphor of the spyglass is so powerful to me. You have seen what can be. Now go, make it so. Ultimately, it's a call to live a life of vision. To see with eyes of faith what doesn't exist now, but what can. It is a world of infinite possibilities because we serve a God for whom there is nothing impossible for. And the Lord is often faithful to show His servants what could be. And we get sustained in vision. Like Proverbs 29, 18 will tell us, depending on your translation, where there is no vision, the people perish. Or where there is no revelation, the people will cast off restraint. It is a gift of God to receive a vision of what could be. And as we're wrapping up August and entering into September and school starting up again, it just, these, this is another time of the year that just seems like a great time to reassess life as it really is and then to dream and imagine and envision life as it could be. And I know already many of you have already received a revelation for your life, a vision of what your life could be. Note that it's not where your life is now. In fact, if you were to talk about it to others, you'd risk them looking back at you as if you were just a wild-eyed dreamer. But you have a vision of what your life can look like financially, free from debt, out of poverty, and no longer enslaved to deficits. Or you have a vision of what your life can be like in regards to your health, finally free from aches and pains caused by our excesses or lack of activity, freedom from addictions and behaviors that are slowly killing us. You have a vision for what your marriage could be like, full of joy and happiness and laughter and love and life. You have a vision for what kind of a parent you could be. A vision for what you could accomplish at your work. A vision for your life that's free from that thing that's always entangled you. A vision of who you are and what you can do in the kingdom of God. 
You have a vision of how to get out of that problem or that situation, that circumstance, or that dilemma. It's as if the Lord has lifted a spyglass of faith to your eye and has asked you to look again at your life and through lenses of faith to begin to see what could be. And this is the power of our gospel. Once in Christ, we begin to see life through the lens of faith. And through that lens, we begin to see what can be. This is what we were talking about a few weeks ago out of 2 Corinthians 5.16. You might remember when we were going over this passage from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. And we can stretch this beyond just people, but also to situations and circumstances. We now view them from the spyglass of faith that allows us to have a vision of what can be, a vision of what it would look like if God has His way, a vision of the kingdom of God. And this seems to me to be the very ministry of Jesus. Didn't he encounter individuals and ask them to look through a spyglass at what could be? And then didn't he charge them with go and make it so? Like at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, after Jesus' resurrection, he meets with his disciples. They're all gathered together. It says this in Matthew 20, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In short, this is Jesus saying, you have seen what can be, now go and make it so. Didn't he take 12 men whose lives felt pretty much mundane, routine, and then Jesus shows up and through faith gives them a glimpse of what could be. Doesn't he take a woman at a well in Samaria and show her a picture of life as what could be? Doesn't he take a blind man and give him a vision, I mean, both literal and metaphoric, of what life could be? Doesn't he take a demonized child and give a vision of what life could be? Jesus walks around much like the old man in our story and continually calls us to live a life that, that can only be seen through the lens of faith. And most of you have caught glimpses from our Lord by the ministry of the Holy Spirit of what your life can be, healed of a disease full of the fruits of the Spirit, empowered with gifts from the Spirit, true and abundant life. You've caught a glimpse of your passion and your calling. You've caught a glimpse of what life in the Word and in prayer looks like. And to each of you that receives a vision of what could be, let me say to you, go and make it so. Even if what is is completely broken, even if what is at the moment is so messed up, or even in your present it is just shattered, I want you to know that Jesus is in the process of making all things new. May you receive a vision of what can be. But as you do, I, do need, to, I need to caution you. Dallas Willard tells us that really you need three things for any real change to happen in life. One is vision, but the other two are intention and means. All three are required. Vision, as we've been talking about, is the power to be able to see what can be, but vision by itself will do us no good. Our spyglass will be functionally little more than a kaleidoscope to us. I mean, it'll be entertaining for a moment, and then we'll set it down. Your vision is useless if you don't intend to go after it. Intention is our inner motivation to see something come to pass. See, I can have vision for what it looks like to be healthy and fit, but that vision will do me no good if I have no intention of passing up the cheese fries, which I had to get in one more last sermon, right? That's one. Intention is the moment we decide. It's the point of decision. I will have this. I intend to get out of debt. I intend to overcome this habit. I intend to fix my relationships. I intend to graduate. I intend to be on the honor roll this year. You can have vision all you want. If you don't intend to live it out, your preferred future will never come to pass. But the last is means. 
and the means is just simply the necessary resources to accomplish our vision. You could have a vision for being debt-free. You might even intend to be debt-free, but if you don't have a plan, then you're lacking the means. And this is why like, the Dave Ramsey courses have been so helpful because not only does it inspire with vision and intention and motivation, but it gives the means. Here's the plan. Here's the steps. Vision and intention will not be enough. There has to be means. You can have vision and intention for losing weight, but if you don't have a gym membership or a piece of fitness equipment or running shoes or a healthy menu plan, you're lacking the means to execute your intended vision. Okay, now I have to ask you to do me a favor. I need the Living Stones Church to be like that spyglass for our neighborhood and community. With eyes of faith and with a revelation and vision from God, let us humbly hold up the spyglass and give our neighborhood a vision of what can be. Now, the landlords at Miami Hills, they have a vision for Miami Hills. It's called making a bunch of money. But we aren't bound by the landlord's vision for Miami Hills. We can see more. We can see a place that is safe for kids. A place that has nice playground equipment, a place that sees its residents putting their lives back together, finding good employment. We can see a community center, job training, assistance with resumes. We could see after school programs and classes that give vision to overcoming systemic poverty. We can see what Monroe can be, and it is hands down the most beautiful building in the South Bend School Corporation. We can see it with teachers who are encouraged and passionate. Teachers who remember why they got into this field to begin with. Teachers who are actually supported by the corporation and given the freedom they need to reclaim a love for teaching. We can see children who have a future orientation and a love of learning. And we can see children learning not only essential requirements of good education, but also are growing in issues of character, learning how to talk and treat one another with respect, learning what it means to be a good friend learning how to interact with each other and adults in a way that honors the worth and dignity of both. We could see passing grades. We could see field trips. We could see good lunches. We can see laughter. And we can see state visits to Monroe to figure out what they did that no one else seemed to be able to do. And we can see Riley High School. And we can see what it looks like for a high school kid to burn with such a passion for Jesus that it sparks a revolution of radical love in the hallways of Riley High School. And we can see Michigan Street. We can see it free from crime and poverty and drugs and prostitution. And we can see safe neighborhoods with thriving businesses, with gathering spaces for neighbors. We can see Don Moyer and Woodside, and Oakside, and Ekman, and Irvington, and Fairview, and Victoria, and Altgeld, and Ewing, and Fox, and Donald, and on. Neighborhoods that are free from crime, home ownership, full of playing children, community developed on front porches, the elderly cared for and loved, a place where with pride we call home. We can see what it looks like to plant other Livingstones churches in other parts of Michiana, the region, and the world. We can see what it looks like to start social entrepreneurial businesses that not only provide real goods and services to our neighborhood, but actually give people jobs and living wages. 
We could see what it looks like to dive into the blight of our neighborhoods and develop low-income housing and restore private ownership again. We could see what it looks like for those who are in bondage to addictions to find freedom. We have seen what it looks like to be a resource and a place of hope for people who want to see relationships restored and abundant life pursued. We have seen what it looks like to speak prophetically to the powers that be the powers and principalities, the systems and structures that are intentionally against the least of these, that we might bring a new reality. We have seen what can be now make it so. Go and collect the harvest that has already been provided for you through the power of God that can only be seen by faith. Do not settle for broken down cathedrals. Don't settle for living in poverty. Don't settle for fields that yield nothing. You have seen that there is more. Now go and make it so. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have seen what can be. Now go make it so. Amen. stay up here. <laughs> I mean, please stay up here. <laughs> Several have asked us what's next, and I just want to take this opportunity to let you know that uh, for the last couple of months, uh, the elders have been in discussion with Adam Gustine, whom you've heard this summer a couple of times preach for us. We were impressed by what we heard in his sermons. Oh, yeah, please sit down. Thank you. <laughs> I forgot during the first service, and they sat through the whole thing uh, and breathed deeply. And um, Adam has agreed to come and serve as our interim pastor, and uh, we are looking forward to having him with us. We have, so we have met with him for the last couple of months. Each time we've become more impressed and growing more in love with him. And he and his wife, Ann, and their family have recently moved back to South Bend from the Chicago area. And we look forward to Adam coming to work with us. And I think Sam has a story to tell about. Yeah, I was my own. I think I turned. Am I now? Check, check. Which? There we go. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Yeah, I'm super excited about Adam coming. Uh, the story actually began in Yats at uh, on Eddy Street. Uh, Adam was in town to have lunch, so we were just talking about his life situation. I was sitting there thinking, 
kind of knowing my plans for the future, but I hadn't shared it with anybody. I thought, do I say something or not say something? And I thought, okay, listen, let me tell you what's going on. Uh, and I just shared with him kind of my own plans, but for him specifically, um, it was because I knew his heart and experience in ministry. Like he has a real passion for community and neighborhoods, and uh, that's what he's doing. In fact, um, what I'm excited about is not only does he have, he's a smart dude. Now listen, he's going to have a different style, and he's clearly not as good looking as me, but uh, just, <laughs> he's actually done the things that, that I've just talked about. Like he's actually started social entrepreneurial projects and businesses and church planting and stuff like that. And so it feels like after 22 years, it's like a kid that you're handing off. Like that's what, in some sense, and I can't tell you how relieved I was when the elders made this decision. It was sort of a, there was for me a personal, okay, good. It's going to be just fine. So I just want you to know I'm excited about Adam. I'm excited about our staff. And I truly do believe that the very best of Living Stones is yet ahead. And so I just want to say it's good and I love you. Permit me this one thing here. Um, it was 47 years ago this past February, I was finishing up my senior year in college uh, down in Arkansas, and my wife and I suspected she might be expecting, so she went to the doctor's office, <laughs> which was a block and a half from the apartment where we lived. And, uh, and I will remember to the day I die watching her from the apartment window as she walked back to tell me the news that we were expecting. She was wearing a red sweater with brown slacks, I remember that. <laughs> and uh, he was a month early, uh, 47 years ago, the end of this month. The 30th. Uh, we came to church here on August 29th, and at 12.30 that afternoon, Diane went into labor, and she was in a hard labor for 23 and a half hours. He started out as a pain. <laughs> we didn't get to hold him for a whole week after he was born because he was jaundiced. We thought he had a good tan, but he was jaundiced. <laughs> they kept him in an incubator under a belly ribbon light. He also had something called trench mouth, which we believe caused him to speak faster. <laughs> but he has been a source of uh, joy and challenge and pride. And so that's why I want her up here, because she went through the pains. <laughs> and I paid for it, so okay. <laughs> Steve, it's all yours. <laughs>